Welcome to Travel Takes from Generation Travel Radio, where we share our thoughts on the latest updates in travel. You are listening to Travel Takes Outgoing, which focuses on travel within and outside of the United States. Please note that the opinions shared in these episodes are the personal opinions of the individuals and do not reflect the views of their employers. We hope you enjoy listening. Hello, everyone. This is Generation Travel Radio. We're super excited to bring these every six-week updates in both outgoing and incoming travel. Right now, this is the outgoing piece of it, and Aaron and I are really excited to introduce to you both today uh, Rita Guzman and Duff Archie, um, who are going to be with us for these episodes where we discuss what's happening in the world of travel if people from the United States want to move about outside of the United States or even within the United States. What is that looking like today? And today is April 25th. It's a Sunday. We'll be releasing this in a day or two um, to keep you all up up to date on, on what's happening and what our thoughts are. But before we launch into the content today, as many of our listeners will be eager to hear what we have to say about uh, recent announcements, um, I'm going to have Rita and Duff introduce themselves. So we'll start with Rita and then we'll, we'll go to Duff. And our questions for you are a question we ask all of our guests, which is what are your personal missions? Um, but we also are curious to know what was your first experience outside of the US and what are you up to these days? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. My name is Rita Guzman. And my personal mission for me, it's going to sound general, but essentially um, serving others, especially students. I'm very, very passionate about assisting, um, especially undergraduate and graduate students achieve not only academic success, but also um, explore opportunities like international travel, especially study abroad. Uh, Nowadays, it's looking a little bit different how that's being done. Um, especially as we go more virtual, but that's essentially in general, what I feel like my life purpose is, is to continue helping students achieve incredible things. Um, In terms of first experience abroad, I would say that that was probably when I was, I think a baby (laughs) going over to Dominican Republic where my family is originally from and visiting our family. So that was technically my very first like passport, passport stamp, I guess. Super cool. And, you know, maybe you can actually tell everyone, Rita, about how you've had a little bit of radio show experience before in, in the not too recent, not too distant past. Yes, yes. So I actually, um, and you may hear about this later, I'm very, very passionate about international um, programs, especially study abroad. So in undergrad, I actually did an international internship program through IS, which is one of the many providers out there for study abroad and internships. And I ended up interning in Dublin as a radio host for a local community radio station, Dublin South FM 93.9 on the dial. So Oh, yes, very experienced in being on the radio, interviewing people, doing weather and even advertisements. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> oh, man, it makes me think of our conversation before about, about the weather and the rain and the not rain and in various parts of the world. Rita, what are you up to these days just to give people an idea of where you are on the map? Yeah, so I'm currently based in Chicago. Don't plan on leaving anytime soon either, but I'm just working remotely, um, changed jobs. So did transition and made that in during this pandemic, uh, but still working remotely, hanging out with my two cats um, that I adopted also during the pandemic. And yeah, just hanging out by the lake. It's very, yeah, not much time is flying by somehow, but I'm just here. <laughs> Rita's cats sometimes make appearances, and I'm sorry yes, our, our viewers. <laughs> They're out right now. I've made sure of that, but yes, maybe. <laughs> Always love visits from furry friends. Awesome. Thank you, Rita. And I'll turn it over to Duff. Duff, please introduce yourself. Hey, folks. Yeah, my name is Duff Archie. Um, I started my career um, in the education abroad world roughly five years ago, um, designing and developing student-centric travel experiences. Um, I graduated from St. Lawrence University with a degree in economics and business, um, and now um, are you know spending my time focusing on increasing travel safety adherence for Gen Z specifically, trying to get them um, to adhere to the travel safety policies that institutions and organizations put forth. Um, 
my first, uh, you know, I think travel experience abroad was uh, for my aunt and uncle's wedding when I was like five years old. I think I went to St. John's uh, Island in, um, uh, in Canada. And, uh, but my first me truly memorable experience, I think, was in middle school, I did an exchange program with a middle school in, on Eleuthera uh, in the Bahamas, which was a phenomenal experience. Um, and you know, my personal mission really uh, is to try to bring that student voice into the education abroad uh, market and elevating you know, the individual student's voice um, and their perspective on uh, current market trends and analysis. Awesome, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, that sounds amazing to be in you know, in the behind the island region when you're <laughs> for a whole semester or year. That's really cool. Um, thank you. We're Aaron and I are just thrilled to have you both on with us. Uh, Duff is actually kind of, I feel like Duff, you're going to be our TikTok guy. He's, he's <laughs> at TikTok to see what, what Gen Z is saying about uh, traveling and, and study abroad experiences and also virtual exchange experiences. So it'll be great to have that input as well. Um, yes. Uh, hashtag study abroad is a wild and wonderful place. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a bit about this. I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have TikTok, but I've seen a little bit. It's so. nice that you can sometimes see the videos without having the app. Though I finally got the app thanks to thanks to Def actually. I was like, all right, all right, it's time. <laughs> well, great. Um, so we're going, I'm going to hand it off to Aaron. Aaron's going to give a little bit of background on, on kind of our main topic for today, which is probably going to unfurl into a conversation around um, a lot of different things that the four of us have been thinking about. So Aaron, take it away. Awesome. Thanks for the intro. And yes, I'm also so happy to have both Rita and Duff on our podcast for this, you know, every few week update that we're going to have. But I know the big topic that everyone's been talking about, even me not being an international ed anymore. I know my group chats from all my old colleagues are popping off lately talking about the Department of State's update to the travel advisory list. And everyone who's in international ed uh, as an, an employee or working in it knows how important it is to have low levels, um, you know, level ones, twos, uh, and threes to be able to travel abroad to certain countries from your institution. But the Department of State has decided to increase about 80% of the world's countries. So eight out of 10 countries are now at level four, which is considered do not travel. I understand they did this in order to be closer to the CDC's guidelines as well, because these are two separate entities that have two different um, like levels of thresholds in terms of their recommendations for traveling. And they're saying that they strongly recommend U.S. citizens reconsider travel abroad, which I think is a key word there and will probably be part of our discussion as well. So I know a lot of us have conversations or have already had conversations. Rita and me, we've already mentioned having questions about this and how it will impact um, students' abilities to travel in the near future, um, to study abroad, and in the, the long term, you know, when could this end, especially since we don't know when COVID will end. So I'd love to kick off the conversation from there now that we've provided a little bit of background and see maybe what everyone's hot take is on this, what was your initial reaction, um, and maybe if you've had any conversations uh, with old colleagues, current colleagues, other people in the industry, especially since there was just uh, a couple NASA events going on. So I'm curious if that just came up. So anyone that's got something, let's go right ahead and jump in. Well, I think this is more of a, let's say personal travel thing because um, I, I mean, with the warning, I know for sure, I don't plan on doing any international travel until I feel a lot, but the advisory has gone down and the pandemic has gotten a lot better overseas um, for a lot of different reasons, mainly because I don't want to feel like <laughs> I kind of alluded to, you know, I don't know, hundreds of years ago, people coming over from a different land coming and infecting people with all these diseases overseas. Um, I have done some domestic travel, very, very few, but even the last time that I did travel domestically, that kind of put me off just based off of how many there's a lot of people flying and traveling all over the place. Um, and I, I think, unfortunately, this is where I, I want to ask people that are, you know, all of you that are working in institutions or wherever you are, your thoughts on this, because 
Um, so just based on what I'm seeing, I think I feel like people kind of have this notion like, okay, more and more people are getting vaccinated. So we're all good. So we can go, we can do whatever. I know that's not the case across the board hundred percent, but I, I personally don't think that this travel advisory is going to deter people from traveling abroad just because I feel like there's kind of this general notion that people think like, oh, we're at the, but we're almost done. We're like, we're basically done. So yeah, it's okay. We can still go. And then I even know family members that are planning on going to the Dominican Republic in, um, you know, in summer, I even have a, a cousin that went last week. So yeah, I don't really see it having as much of an effect as it did, let's say a year ago from now, but I'm curious what y'all's thoughts are on that. Yeah, Rita, I think I, I 100% agree with you. I, I think that you know, for the lar large part, it will be up to the individual institutional organization, you know, um, making the deciding factor whether to send students uh, or not, just as, as it has been for the last, you know, rough, you know, rough year or so. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, it, on an individual student level, it's not going to make the difference on whether they want to go or not. Um, I think they've always wanted to go regardless of risk. And, um, you know, I think that there's been a few anecdotes now from students that have studied abroad during the pandemic um, in, you know, um, you know, safe, as much as safe as possible um, scenarios and situations without it's demonstrated an ability to keep a confined environment and manage the student travel that um, some organizations might, you know, adapt to this uh, and adapt their locations. But I think for the most part, you know, we'll see a continuation of, you know, maybe the status quo of, um, you know, and if not a, a, a more, um, you know, return to travel even more so. I, I, you know, I think that just kind of adjusting based off of the location of where the CDC and, and State Department recommends. And as you mentioned, the, the similarities and differences between what the CDC says and the State Department, because one of the things that I noticed was that the CDC actually you know, it doesn't make any mention not to travel at all if you're vaccinated. Um, and, and um, you know, one of the things that I could totally see happening is that, you know, organizations and institutions are just going to have it be a mandatory vaccination requirement, just like malaria or anything else that you would get, you know, traveling to a, a foreign country. Um, so I can see, you know, it, it kind of depending, you know, some, maybe some organizations might lean more toward, well, heavily towards the CDC requirements, others might lean heavily towards your know, State Department. Um, so it could vary. But I'd love to you know your thoughts, uh, Kelly and Erin. Yeah, it's super interesting what, what institutions are going to lead more towards. It's such a hot debate. I've seen several uh, emails come through the SACUSL listserv, which is kind of a international education more heavily towards education abroad listserv but I think so my personal thoughts generally is I read one article and I wish I could find it I should have saved it earlier this week that was saying that that part of that reasoning from the CDC is also you know keeping other people safe so in partnership the CDC and the Department of State are like you know it's not just about are are you going to be safe going there but also there seems to be some thought of, are you going to be negatively impacting that region there? Is it all altogether going to cause some sort of harm? But I can't find the article. So, you know, <laughs> uh, can't pull the straight quote out from it. But I was in, in thinking about that, I am actually quite in favor of the travel advisories increasing. Um, because I think that for regular travel, you know, like if you want to go somewhere for a week or two, those are really important things to consider. And I completely agree with Rita. I think there's going to be some people who don't think about that. And it's not good because also as Rita was alluding to, there's there's kind of, we've learned this part of history before, right? And we have access to, to knowing that. Now, when it comes to institutions or even when we're thinking about work visas, um, the, the somebody, uh, Sarah Dart, who is with, uh, she, oh, I can't remember the name of the organization. She's Education of. Ireland. Or Thank you, Education Ar I Ireland. Think. Yeah, she posted an article from CIEE, um, and that article is actually from December of 2020, and it's talking about, you know, how these these some 
some of the what were what what was it exactly something about how um these travel regulations that we're putting out there are very u.s centric and we're not and we're i think it was because the united states had so many cases and and the Department of State advisories were saying like, oh, you really shouldn't travel to this place right now when it doesn't think about how the United States was actually a worse place to be than that particular location when you were just looking at COVID-19 um, cases. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. And I think what this is really putting into thought is, you know, when we send students abroad or when people move abroad and they're going for work or they're going for longer term study, something that's longer than two weeks. I think that the idea of, you know, short-term faculty-led programs, that's something entirely different. But when you're going for that period of time, you're going and you're living somewhere. You're not going to travel somewhere. You're actually going to be, you know, you've got, you've got to, you, no matter, even if you're just going to travel, you have to obey all of the rules. The whole point is to have that kind of broader experience where you're, you're, living you're living for a longer period of time under these different rules and regulations and you can see how the culture interacts with that and what what the politics and policies are and that's part of kind of the learning experience so i think that this is really going to reshape and there was somebody who posted in the in the listserv um, a couple of days ago who was really talking about how we need to have a different set of standards. And this woman was coming from a one person office, um, which I can totally identify with. And it was like, you know, there's all these different rubrics and whatnot, and they're from the Department of State, they're from the CDC, but how are you going to ingest all that information if you are one person and you have all these other things you have to handle? Um, and, and so I think it's really calling for a almost reevaluation of if we are sending people abroad or we are going abroad ourselves for a longer duration of time and we're staying in one place. So not, you know, hopping, we're not, oh, going to Europe for three months, but hopping into in different places every few weeks or days or whatever it is. Um, how do we reevaluate what that means in terms of whether or not we go somewhere? Which is probably coming back to the point you made, Aaron, about you know the re the word reconsider. <laughs> Kelly, I, I just want to hop in there because I feel like there's two points here that um, are uh, maybe will lead into a, a longer discussion about you know first um, you know I think there your, your point to you know there's a misalignment of uh, policies you know based on country I think is definitely you know re really interesting because. Um, you know, in a lot, a lot of the articles and research that I've been doing, um, a, a big point keeps coming up of uh, that U.S. centric um, you know, theme uh, that you were that you were mentioning, and that a lot of other countries, um, you know, especially when it comes to uh, digital wellness passports, vaccine passports, whatever you want to call them, um, which I know is a really hot topic we want to get into later. Um, you know. A, People, the, the guidelines about who's setting the guidelines, and it, it's pretty unanimous that yes, this is a good thing. This will help us return to travel faster. However, where a lot of people seem to be, um, you know, uh, getting lost is, you know, how is this exactly implemented? You know, who's your know, passport? There's right now like roughly five to ten different passports, you know, digital wellness passports on the market that are being tested in pilot phases around the world. Which ones are going to be the standard and which ones are going to be accepted by, you know, um, IATA, the you know, Association um, for um, Airline Travel, and which are testing their own passport, you know, digital wellness passport, um, and which are, are not. So, you know, I think this uh, travel policies in general, like, you know, different countries having different travel policies is definitely something that's going to be tough to navigate and something we're just going to have to watch, you know, day by day, really, as this, as this unfolds. Um, but I think to your second point there, I, I wanted to touch on this concept of traveling versus living somewhere. And um, I think on a micro scale, we can see this even domestically here in the US with the resurgence and really comeback story of a lifetime with Airbnb and this, um, you know, how people are, you know, um, working remote in quotes um, or you know working away really where because everybody's working 
nomadic, you know, you know, nomadically now, um, they're like, oh, well, I can book someplace for a month or three months somewhere out of my, you know, home city that I'm living in in the States and still get that, you know, still kind of get that quote travel feel for things. And so, you know, I mean, I myself am guilty of that. I spent a month um, working in Charleston recently. And, um, you know, although we all practiced, you know, safe social distancing, we all got tested before, you know, we went there, we were in a small, very, you know, very small group. Um, you know, we kind of absorbed into the local day-to-day -day life of the destination. Um, and I think that I actually were, was thinking just personally about how I, you know, it seemed a little bit like my study abroad uh, in London and in Copenhagen of just kind of a simulating into the day-to-day -day culture uh, and, you know, how you know, a completely different lifestyle of, you know, uh, my day-to-day -day life here in the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so, I, you know, I think that that concept of travel versus, you know, living somewhere, but you have to travel to get there is an interesting concept um, that I you know, definitely would love to explore more. I'm totally in agreement with that because that was a conversation that, you know, some of my old colleagues had brought up recently when they saw this announcement as well. Some of them that are still uh, in the field, others that are just curious about it. And I too did the same thing and worked nomadically uh, for a month in the middle of the winter to get out of Chicago's freezing cold. Um, but it was ultimately where we were still following the same really strict guidelines that we had in Illinois, which were not the same as where I was at, but we decided, you know, that's what we wanted to do. And I never ate out at a restaurant, you know, did any of those things, although I really would have liked to. I just, for myself, I knew it was better if we didn't bring anything we might've had or vice versa, get anything. So I think it's ultimately up to every individual person, but you are going and living there and you're making those decisions. And ultimately college students are adults. We have to keep that in mind. And they do get a lot of rules and parameters given to them. So they're often in these programs, at least, um, especially the more structured ones. So I think there is a lot of ways to guide them on how to you know, properly do this if they didn't know how to beforehand. I think they're smart enough to probably figure that out if they're getting a college degree. But on top of that, even working in education abroad while this all unfolded back in March 2020, I remember hearing from a lot of parents that were trying to you know, get their kids out because I was talking to them on the phones from New Zealand or Australia being like, I want my kid to stay there. I think this is ultimately going to be the safer location. And they ultimately were right. Um, but their student was going to be without health insurance, for example, because our programs were ending it at the time to get them out. But, you know, thinking about being able to bring students back to isolated areas like that or to programs that are self-isolating in some way, you still can have the experience, I think, of living locally, as you mentioned, while following protocols. So I'm more curious as to how the institutions are going to interpret these, um, these changes in the, the level, the warning level from the Department of State because I know some institutions will just say, absolutely not. You cannot bring your, your scholarships if you were before, or, or you're not going to get credit, transfer credit for what you do there. And so I, I really hope that's not the case, but I can see that potentially happening. And I'm curious if any of you have any insight on that as well. Well, I was actually to go back to so Aaron and Duff, and I think Kelly, actually, all three of you mentioned this and something that I kept thinking of. Um, so speaking of Department of State, I just kept thinking about the Fulbright program, um, which I did myself, but I know. So I had a lot of friends that um, had to come back last year and a lot of them that were incredibly upset that they had to come back to the US. And I remember them even posting pictures of like O'Hare and how crazy that was coming back to us where their their host country was a lot safer and doing a lot better and has done a lot better in regards to managing the pandemic and restrictions with lockdowns and all that. So I I guess I would also question um, that part. It's tricky because having worked at international ed too, it's like you have to make a universal decision and not everybody's going to be pleased with it, but it's also weighing, well, in that case, let's say, okay, yes, they would have been allowed to stay in those countries. What would have happened at the end of their grants or the end of their study abroad time? And then in order for them to come back to the US, what happens then? Um, and then because each institution operates very individually, you know, what 
one institution would say, yes, that's okay. Others are like, no, bring them back. They're not getting any credit. But then I also just to kind of think more about Fulbright. So last year, it was a lot of cases of, um, oh, and a lot of them didn't get paid. <laughs> they didn't get paid the rest of their grant. But a lot of, um, and that varied by commission. And, you know, Fulbright being, for those who don't know, it's a bilateral program from the Department of State's, um, the, yeah, Department of State um, Education branch. Um, so bilateral agreement between the U.S. and 140 plus countries. So it's bilateral, meaning, you know, people coming to and from each country, but how differently that was handled by each commission and each embassy too was mind blowing to me. And then this time around though, and I'm be curious because this announcement just came out, I've seen a lot of Fulbrighters go to their, like, especially I'm thinking Taiwan is a country that is receiving Fulbrighters. And I think it was determined as such because Taiwan was doing such a good job at managing things. They're, they're almost basically virtually done with the pandemic, given how, how strict everything was and how contained they made it and following protocols of isolation, things like that. But I'm seeing that now, but now I'm, you know, I'm curious if now it's going to be all over the place, but then even a brief thought that I had is because Fulbright is a department of state and there are other programs like that. Do people on those programs get to kind of supersede the, okay, the travel for like, oh, okay. Oh, well, you're technically with the department of state. So it's okay because you're going there for a purpose, but then it brings into question other programs like um, study abroad, even um, auxiliaris programs in Spain and China to teach English. I just was thinking about that in the back of my head while all of you were mentioning this travel component. So just putting that out there as a thought. <laughs> That's such a good point, Rita. I, I, all I can think of is how my sister's roommate uh, is in like the final rounds of getting Fulbright that would start in January. And I think she'd be going to Paraguay. And so I Feel like we're gonna get to see that play out you, you know that's such a that's such a great question um i just wanted to uh put in that the the article that i was referring to earlier um from ciee was by bill bull so i will put that in i will put a link in the uh in the show notes um that's all i popped in here to say <laughs> yeah i'm just i'm still very curious about and maybe duff because you can speak to safety if you've had any experience with, um, I guess, considerations of in of the countries that people are traveling to versus like here in the US. Because again, some countries are doing a better job. I know countries like Australia are, are doing such a good job. Like, no, no, we need to keep our bubble and not let anybody in to this country so we can maintain this bubble of, um, they're, at the, they're at the goal stage of normalcy again, because they've contained it so much, but um, that's not the same across the board. And then who decide, you know, who do you follow? I'm very curious thoughts on that just because when I was reading a lot of information and I, I even like when I worked in international education, a lot of the questions were like, well, who are we supposed to follow if the CDC, the state department don't have the same, same restrictions. And then even the countries themselves don't. So who, who would be, you know, the suggested governing body to kind of adhere to. I don't know, Duff, if you think one is better than the other in terms of safety, I'm just curious. Yeah, that's a really good question, Rita. And I think you know, like everything, it depends. <laughs> but um, I think it, it, it really does depend on the situation, the institution, the organization, you know, whoever, and honestly, the specific students in that program. Um, and so, um, you know, I've heard anecdotal stories from students, you know, like you were mentioning that, uh, and I think Aaron, you touched on this too, that um, they, last March when everything blew up, blew up um, it's, there were some students, especially from that oceanic, oceania, uh, APAC region that were saying like, I'm better off here. I don't want to go back to New York City where in my three bedroom apartment with my family, where you know the at that you know at that point the New York City was the worst you know, um, you know place the country for COVID and so um, you know they you know, some students fought tooth and nail and actually won you know uh, to their universities and said so they allowed their university they allowed the university allowed them to stay there um, others were basically you know uh, the university was like all right that's on you that's on you you know we're, we you know, absolve ourselves from all liability and you know that that's now personal travel um, and you know. You can figure out your own way home pretty much um 
And, uh, you know, I think in terms of best governing body, what I've heard a lot from our uh, travel assistance providers um, and your travel assistance partners, um, and just for the audience, I, I don't think I introduced this at the uh, beginning, but I um, am the co-founder of Off We Go. We are a student-centric risk management platform for education abroad. Um, and, you know, which is kind of what I was touching on uh, earlier about, you know, increasing travel safety adherence for Gen Z. So um, just to give a little backstory on, um, you know, my background. But anyway, you know, Rita, I think to your, to your point of you know, who the best governing body is, it's going to depend on what, at the end of the day, what are you most looking for and, and what your, your individual risk tolerance is, you know, so these governing bodies are going to obviously have varying different, uh, Dif uh, differing views and risk tolerances themselves of how they set their guidelines. And so really adjusting, following which one um, you know, fits your specific risk tolerance uh, as an as a institutional organization. Um, what I you know, can give my, my two cents, my personal opinion, um, is that the travel assistance company themselves might actually be a really good place to turn to this um, because of their decentralized network of uh, intelligence gathering. And you know, the, a lot of, I mean, there are dozens of assistance firms now. Um, and um, however, in, in my opinion, the ones that are better or have a little bit of an edge are ones that have a decentralized intelligence network where they gather intelligence you know, from the ground, from you know, law enforcement agencies, um, intelligence agencies in the respective countries that they operate in. Um, and so, um, you know, those, those, I, I would say, um, you know, those are the ones to, to pay attention to. Obviously, it's kind of a uh, you know, all systems go here, all, you know, all hands on deck, you, you be sure to incorporate all, all perspectives here in your decision making. Um, but those I would also, I would definitely look at those, um, you know, it's travel assistance firms if you can. That's a really great piece of advice, Steph. You know what this is really making me think about too is something that I think we've probably all been thinking a little bit about since the big onset of the pandemic, how we live in such a global world and there's no escaping it. I, absolutely everything that we do is connected somehow to other other places on earth. And the only body that we, well, I mean, there's plenty of international groups, but I think of like the UN, but like how much do they, <laughs> they don't have a lot of impact. And I'm just wondering, do we, is, is the pandemic kind of a, an example of how we need, do we need something like that? Is that a bad idea? Because I think that in the United States, where we all are, where we're from, we can also see all of these movements trying to go more local. And I think that that's important too. But it just makes me think, you know, like, is there, do we need a body that's going, okay, world, like, we got to be unified on this. Here's what our travel advisories are right now, effective immediately or effective, like, in a week or probably more, you know, sooner rather than later. But I don't, does anybody have thoughts on that? I could see pros, cons, is the world ready? <laughs> it's an interesting point, Kelly. I, you know, one of the, um, I think one of the most interesting and well-run um, education abroad uh, offices that I've seen, um, I don't want to disclose any names, but you know, the themes that I've seen are um, incorporate that international perspective into it. So they, they look at not only the US regulations and, and um, you know, suggested policies, but they incorporate the governing bodies of you know, uh, other countries as well. I think specifically it was the UK, um, Australia, um, you know, in particular, those two countries, um, but they incorporated other travel policies and looked at it from more of an international world lens because you know, countries are placing restrictions on the US as well. So um, you know, I think that's something that you know, a lot of you know, folks could, could benefit from as well as kind of taking a more um, international perspective. As for if you are people ready, um, that's a very good question. I, you know, I think it, it, it also is gonna depend on, on the, the risk tolerance and openness to innovation um, that you know, institutions or organizations are going to have. Um, I think a lot more people are open to innovation now than they, they obviously were 12 to 18 months ago. 
Um, however, I still think, you know, this is an area that, you know, we'll be seeing constant change over the next few years. Definitely. I think that's a great point. Rita, were you going to say something? No, I think I lost it. No, those are great. <laughs> that was a great answer. I was just thinking, I was like, oh, well, I, I don't want to sound like a pessimist, but I'm like, no, I don't We're not think there the yet. world is going to, no, there no, there's no way if the U.S. cannot agree within the states themselves on, and now I don't. I don't think we're not, we're not the EU, but even then within the EU, yeah, I just don't. It's, There's lots of yeah. questions about the EU too. Yes, exactly. So it's like the case in point, like it's, it's kind of all over the place for them right now. Um, I guess I do. Well, I, from the people that I know that have traveled abroad, but let's say I have a friend that went from Portugal to the UK. So still Europe, not EU anymore, but still Europe. Um, and they, they still had to isolate. And I've noticed like they've been very, very, very minimal in the things that they have done after their period of two week isolation, I think. Um, and like she did adhere to it with her boyfriend. Like they, they adhered to it. They ordered in food or like cooked themselves in their own place. And now is when they're starting to explore, but not in the, you know, traditional sense of especially going to London, you know, you want to see the museums and all these other attractions, but a lot of them are closed. So it's kind of a lot of time outside on walks as much as possible is what I'm noticing. Um, this kind of might be deterring the situation, but you know, the experience of living and being abroad and in here, and yeah, you do, a, a, you know, um, acclimate yourself so that you're living, but um, I don't know. I guess I was thinking from my own personal experience of having studied abroad a few times and lived abroad and traveled abroad. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious to know thoughts on, you know, encouraging study abroad right now, given that I think in my head, I'm still a bit like, yes, maybe if you're being ultra safe and, you know, isolating yourself and doing that. But then to me, you're still not getting the, the full, like the full blown experience of that country. So I'm kind of deterring from that. And I know we still got to talk about the vaccine passports that Duff started to bring up. Um, Cause that, that effort too. see, to me, it's, it's still, it's not as coordinated as it probably should be. And then um, I know before I transitioned um, the place that I was at was also talking about whether or not students should be required um, to be vaccinated, but then there are all these questions of like the institutional level then of institutions requiring it to um, versus country. I know like my personal opinion, like, yes, I would be in favor, but then, you know, asking for proof of that or all of that. And what does that mean for a passport? Is that just tracking you where you're going? That's, is, yeah, clarifications on like a regular passport. I don't know, you know, so yeah. Yeah, I think that, Duff, you're probably going to be our expert on this one, but I think it make, it's like a perfect segue into, into the, the vaccine passports. And I'm just chiming in real quick to say I have kept my vaccine card in my passport. I'm like, where else is it going to go? That's, that's what I'm going to need it. So uh, Duff, fill us in. What's, what's the 411 on the vaccine passports? Yeah, absolutely. So first, uh, before I kind of dive in, I want to just read it to your point. I think, you know, should we be encouraging students or you, know, if you even if you can't get the full experience, I think this the answer is absolutely resounding. Yes, I think you know, if you can, you, uh, I mean, again, also, it depends, <laughs> um, your know, disclaimer. But um, I think, you know, if you can conduct a program safely and provide, um, you know, certain levels of, um, you know, uh, risk preparation in place and the students fully understand that this is not gonna look like a tra traditional study abroad, that they know that th their friends two years older than them or a year older than them who went and traveled all around Europe every weekend, it's not gonna look the same. Um, that I think you'll find you'll still get a, a lot of students that are going to be very open to a different type of experience. Because again, I think as we kind of touched on earlier, you know, it, it, um, you can still kind of incorporate a different culture, even if you're just living day to day in a, you know, with restrictions, with all of that, um, taking in that. And I think um, a good example of this is uh, DIS, you know, shout out to all my DIS fellow alums um, in, you know, who did uh, DIS in, Den in Denmark. Um, but they ran a pilot uh, with, I think, one school this, this past uh, spring. And it was a shortened program. 
and it was you know, only with a handful of students, um, but they still were able to um, you know, conduct classes and you know, go on cultural excursions. Obviously, that was mostly outside with you know and, and you know distance and everything. But um, I think they showed you know, proof that you can you can have a successful experience. And yes, it might be different, but um, you know it'll still be you know a very memorable memorable one um, for better or for worse. Um, but I guess transitioning over to these vaccine passports, definitely a very hot topic. Um, and you know, as I was kind of starting to get into earlier, it, it, it's there's not much consensus on um, you know any one particular solution in terms of function, Rita. I, I, I think um, no, it's not going to be tracking you uh, everywhere you go. Um, my, from my understanding, it is um, a QR code uh, that you present you know, to you know, basically enter um, into the country. Uh, or venue, um, you know, as New York City is currently piloting, um, to, in order to have access to a you know, normal quote unquote lifestyle uh, with other vaccinated uh, people. And you know, this gets into a whole range of topics ranging from discrimination to, uh, and um, you know, equity to uh, you know, availability and you know, everything. So, um, your know, data privacy is, is the number one um, hesitancy on behalf of the consumer of why they would not um, you know, adhere to this or, or, or you know, download the app or you know, put their uh, very sensitive health information in the app. And so um, current companies are building with that very, very, very much in mind um, with very high encrypt encryption rates um, in terms of like banking level security or if not you know, higher. Um, you're using cutting edge technologies like blockchain to have a decentralized system to and, and ledger so that you know it's um, it's not attributed to any one individual person's um, you know, personal health data. So there's a lot of innovation that's happening within the travel tech sector right now within that it's a very you know things are changing weekly on that on that front I saw you know the um, kind of two travel tech PR firms are um, skiff research and uh, focused right and you know, um, highly encourage people to check out those articles you know um, those companies to you know, stay up to date on your know, travel trends but um, they you know I saw one article from December that was like you know the be-all end-all vaccine passports are our saving grace and then you know a month later you know in January it was you know saying why they won't be our saving grace and you know now it's kind of the narrative is changing very quickly on you know uh, people's opinions on this, you know, how, how it's going to roll, you know, how these are going to roll out. And I think um, similar to the vaccines that the science, you know, like the, the actual tech the, behind it is solid. Um, what now needs to happen is, you know, people negotiating with each other and working together to come up to a, um, you know, general consensus of, uh, you know, how we're going to get actually you know, get people onboarded on, on onto these, um, you know, uh, applications. Yeah, which is hard. It just, it, it makes me think of um, our institution was trying, is trying to roll out this uh, health app and it's kind of for like mental health. So it, you tell it how you're doing or something along those lines and it kind of spits something back out tell you know, showing you what, what range you're at. Um, and it looks really helpful, but I couldn't, I was like, I can't sign on because I don't know where this data is, you know, and I could do the digging to find out exactly where that data is going to end up, although it could change, you know, that's part of the, part of the signing on contract. Um, and it gets nerve wracking in this age where things are going to be influenced, but sorry, <laughs> that's what no, it's No, yeah, I think one of the absolutely critical things here is like you, it's like you said, it, it's, where is the data going? And people, I think, are might have a little bit more trust in um, your know, third-party trade associations who, you know, like IATA, um, or who are going, you know, who don't have an incentive to, you know, disclose any of that information anywhere except for the necessary purposes of, you know, driving the application. And so, um, obviously, a very cutting-edge uh, space of, of, you know. Um, law as well 
Um, but uh, you know, I think if, you know from a travel from an attitude standpoint, you you know on an individual level, every person is going to need to understand um, you know where where their data is going, and I think. Um, you know, a little bit uh, is up to the individual person to do that research, but as well as the organization or association or whoever's putting out, whoever's sponsoring that application to make it very clear in their PR or, uh, you know, marketing for, for that, 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 you know, that's uh, one of the number one things that they built in mind and that they're, they're very disclosed that uh, very openly on, you know, how they use that data. Yeah, I definitely think transparency in that way is going to be very effective or will be the most effective tool that the different providers of these potential vaccine passports have, you know, the creators, especially because I can just think of my own experience um, getting the global entry. So I got global entry uh, like two, two years ago, maybe now I can't even remember because it was pre-pandemic, but I got to use it a few times, but the first time I got it, got to use it. I knew I was going to have to do scan my fingerprints. I had given them. I understood that the government had all that information for the first time. And I walk up to the machine and it takes a picture of me and prints out my receipt. And this woman for American Airlines goes, you're all good. And everyone around is like, what are you talking about? Turns out without notifying anyone, the Department of State or whoever was ha handling that, um, I can't even think of that now was now doing facial recognition and none of us had been notified via, you know, our accounts. So it's just kind of like, well, it would have been nice if they had told me that. I guess they probably already had my face anyways, and we're probably doing it without me knowing it, but now I know, but had never been told. And so it just doesn't build trust. So I think the concept you say of having a third party who's managing it and controlling it other than the government or institutions, probably a good thing. And then also the fact that um, if they promote with transparency, I mean, that is really the best foot forward that I think they could put out there. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. And I think a little bit of it uh, depends on culture, uh, on cultural influences and attitudes as well. You know, so um, you're here in the states. We obviously have a very, um, you know, w one set of your know, beliefs in terms of data privacy. Europe, obviously, as we know, with GDPR and, and all of their regulations, have a, a have a additional set of um, your regulations. You know, China um, is kind of the opposite, where you know, everything there is no privacy, <laughs> um, and so you know, one of, you know when it when it comes to facial recognition, I think you know that's something that over there that you know they use you use your face for everything, whether it's purchasing a can of goods at the grocery store or a sporting event or whatever it is. You know, they're very open with uh, facial recognition over there. Um, in, the, in the states, you know, we are still very lock and key with you know how we use facial recognition, um, and 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 really biometrics in, in general. Um, and you know, this is kind of getting even above my expertise now. Um, but uh, you know, that is something I, I think it's a little good to kind of come back to the main point. It, it's going to depend, I think, on the cultural attitudes of the individual country who's requiring those vaccine uh, requirements on you know what data do they need uh, in order to allow you to come into that country? Yeah, I think the other piece of this that now that we're getting out of your expertise stuff, we got to bring on some like an IT professional, like somebody who's working on these things. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I think the other piece of this is kind of, as you mentioned earlier, like what inequities are going to be there. And I think that about that a lot. I mean, we're seeing a lot of colleges and universities instigating that you have to be vaccinated to come onto campus. And uh, that's going to be, that's going to be a new thing too. And it's interesting in employment law as well, because they're still kind of figuring that out. And we've seen some, we've seen some big companies say that they're going to require vaccination, um, which is another piece that educational institutions are looking at too. Can they require their staff, their employees to vaccinate? And it's getting closer and closer to, yes, you can legally require, but we'll see, we'll see what happens when, because these things are gonna get contested in court for sure here in the United States. So that'll be really interesting. And I think it's also a matter of kind of like we were talking about earlier, um, whether or not, or, or about, uh, the if you how you kind of integrate all of these different not just the U.S. Uh, government uh, travel advisories but also the local government what are they saying are they allowing students and everything and that's going to be another big piece of it 
too. Um, and I'm very curious to see who, you know, what are some, I'm sure there's going to be exceptions to the vaccine, right? We're seeing that as well. Like you have to be vaccinated, but some institutions are saying health, most institutions say if it's a health issue, like, yes, of course you don't have to be vaccinated, but, uh, but but religion is is another thing that some people are saying yes and some other people are not giving exceptions to. And so I'm curious to see how that plays out as well in other countries and how it's going to how it's going to impact um, our students and also just any traveler. Uh, I have a friend whose aunt is not going to her aunt's daughter's wedding, like her own daughter's wedding because it's taking place in another country where she's going to have to be vaccinated in order to enter it and she's in the anti-vaxxer camp and so she's like nope I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it and and it, yeah I mean it's it's um, almost wondering in the U.S. we have so many people who don't get the chance or just don't travel outside of the United States sometimes it's a matter of means other times it's a matter of um, desire and uh, and I wonder what if that's going to have any further impact on I mean we'll see I think we're where there's a lot of people getting vaccinated in the United States but there's going to be a contingent that does not and is that going to further kind of keep some of those people who even maybe would have gone outside of the U.S. on occasion is that going to keep them in the U.S. even more so I don't know. Any, any thoughts about that? I feel like I'm asking really hard questions today. <laughs> I know personally, and this is, you know, my personal opinion, I, my instinct right away is to say like, well, those are the consequences. You don't want to do something that's for the greater good and public health <laughs> of everyone else, not just you. That's on you to not be able to travel. Um, I don't know. Also, I just keep thinking like direct impacts in communities and people that are vulnerable. If you don't end up getting vaccinated to be able to like let's say travel or do anything like that so I'm very much uh it's a tricky thing because I I definitely know for sure people are going to contest like I shouldn't be required to have a vaccine I know um I work with the university now that they're requiring it and I haven't seen anything so far but I think it's also kind of the culture of the school where I don't think um I think it'd be very rare if people contested like oh no, we're not getting vaccinated at that school, but I'm just thinking of others where that probably it's going to be the reverse. Um, so I, like, I'm personally very much in favor of getting vaccinated, especially if you're traveling, just doing anything in general, getting back to your regular quote unquote life domestically and being able to travel domestically too, not just internationally, but yeah, I think, I don't know. Again, I think the pestis is kind of coming out and I'm like, well, um, unless you have like a medical waiver that says like, this is why I can't. Um, but otherwise if it's like a, a choice, like you have the choice and the ability to do it and you have access to vaccines and distribution and things like that, but you're actively choosing not to that. I have a lot of issues with that. <laughs> Just thinking of like, yeah, personal background and lack of access and like my own parents making sure when they came to the U.S. like we were fully vaccinated against all the other things they had to deal with when they were kids. Um, so I come at it from that perspective. I'm no, I'm not the only one <laughs> that especially like child of immigrant parents tends to kind of be the case. But um, yeah, I'm a little bit on the boat where you don't want to do it. And that's what everyone else is adhering for the greater safety of all that's on that's you. what you get that's on you yeah. yeah no absolutely I think I'm thinking from an educational standpoint you know if we as international educators tout like go abroad and whatnot it's going to put even more um I think emphasis on the need for domestic study away programs and like more localized uh programming that you know captures that intercultural development competency which by the way NACE has uh, redone their competencies. So <laughs> other topic for another day. Uh <laughs> That's definitely an interesting topic that I would definitely love to explore more. There's this concept of study away and not necessarily study abroad. And maybe that's a topic for another um, travel tidbits <laughs> episode. But um, I you know, that definitely am a big believer in, in that. I know, you know, um, just personally speaking, in my, in my experience, um, those were, you know, the study away programs um, 
at St. Lawrence were some of the um, you know, most popular. Um, we had an Adirondack semester program where you know, for environmental majors could, would go live in a yurt uh, in the Adirondacks. Um, and you know, it was mostly catered towards English and environmental science majors, but there was a couple of oddballs um, you know, thrown in the mix as well. <laughs> um, were you and, one of them? I was not, unfortunately. <laughs> I had a really good friend that did it and he loved it. Um, but um, also like, you know, I know more and more schools are starting to have like New York City semester programs, you know, for varying um, your disciplines. Um, you know, St. Lawrence also had a uh, exchange program with Fisk University um, in um, Tennessee. And um, you know, a lot of these, you know, if we're just talking about cultural exchange, you know, there's the U.S. is a very diverse and large country as well. So, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of of that. Uh, I'm kind of widening the horizons and definition of education abroad, quote quote, um, because I think uh, you know abroad can just mean outside of your campus. Because traveling to, if you're going to a tiny school. Um, in the middle of nowhere, Oklahoma, and then you choose to study in New York City for a semester, you might, I mean, that's such a big culture shock in itself, you know, like going to London or Paris or Tokyo, you know, so, um, you know, I, I would definitely interested in explore that topic a little bit more. Um, maybe that's a topic for another day, but Good, good, Kelly. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> yeah, I was... I was thinking the same thing. I mean, I didn't know that. I think I knew that existed, but didn't really understand that it fell under this concept of like a global experience. Technically, the state right next to mine is part of the globe and it can still provide a totally different experience. And so thinking about that as another option, um, especially because we're not able, at least within the continental U.S., to truly control like individual state borders um, and who can come and go. I know Hawaii is a little bit more able to do that. But I think what I'm hoping to see out of this, if I can look on the optimistic side of things, for me at least, is what we have talked about or alluded to earlier, is this idea, even if we do it domestically or abroad, that we're going to be able to show students the potential of how much they can get out of local immersion. And I know I did a study abroad experience in Europe and I didn't travel as much as other people, but I still hit a lot of countries, which was great. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, it doesn't feel as immersive as other experiences I did have. And I liked those more. So I want to show people like you really can engage with the local community, you know, hopefully safely with COVID um, and so forth and, and show them the true benefit in that, especially because we have these terms, you know, traditional and non-traditional study abroad, which I really want to do away with those terms and, and show students like you really can um, learn not learn from that but like it's going to be just as a substantial or beneficial experience for you um, than just getting to say I've been to 25 countries well what if you've been to like the 25 provinces of x country and you know ate, ate all the different regional food and heard the seven different languages spoken it within that one country because especially outside of the United States that is extremely common so that's just my take on that as well hopefully we can encourage it through this and find that as the silver lining, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Erin. I think that we'll definitely have to talk about um, more domestic exchanges uh, at another time. We should definitely do a deep dive, um, but we're coming up to the hour. So I wanted to give anyone a chance to say any last thoughts and then we'll, we'll wrap up this first episode of our, of our little travel updates. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I'll hop in. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of just concluding thoughts, um, you know, like everything, it depends. And um, you yourself um, can only make the best decision for that your specific institutional organization. And so I would just you know, recommend getting fully up to speed on all facets of, of this. So um, you know, talking with your above stakeholders on what different types of organization of, you know, um, data points that you need to make you need to have in order to make the final decision uh what are the risk tolerances of that of, of the institutional organization and how do they align with the, those data points and and research that you're that you're gathering on all these topics um and at the end of the day making a decision based off of you know what's best for um you know, the students 
Absolutely. I was going to just throw in too, you know, it's a time of innovation and we're going to have to take some risks at some point. If it's not tomorrow, it's going to be in a year. Um, and I think that, that as long as we do that conscientiously and I'm going to steal a quote from Jeff Berlin, who's going to be a guest on one of our upcoming episodes, do no harm. Um, is we got to be really conscious about that, but we are going to have the, the game has changed. So we got to think, we got to think broad and, and, and really try to navigate this as best as we can and with whoever else we have to work with, um, whether it's other people at our institution or whether it's uh, with your new employer in another country or whatever it might be, um, we're, we're going to have to figure it out. So thanks everyone. Um, this has been fantastic and we'll look forward to next time. Thanks for listening to today's Travel Takes episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, give us a like or a rating. You can also join the discussion by visiting our website listed in the show notes. And remember, keep thinking globally. Thank you.